the Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. As Publishers Weekly writes in its recent glowing review of American Schism, business executive Radwell's epic debut examines the historical influences that have led to what he sees as the collapse of politics in the United States. Seth Radwell makes the case that the current chasm between the American right and left can be traced back to the 18th century's Age of Enlightenment and the basic tenets of liberty, equality, and reason. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to americanschismbook.com. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Still alive and fine for me, I'll 
Welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My uh, guest this hour served at the uh, Food and Drug Administration from 1980 to 2007 and um, has uh, combined his more than 40 years of experience into his new book, Fixing Food, an FDA Insider Unravels the Myths and the Solutions, which... uh, is uh, releasing this month, October of 2021. And he joins me by phone. His name is Dr. Richard Williams. And uh, Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, wow. And, uh, what kind of clearance do you have to have to be an FDA insider? <laughs> <laughs> well, fortunately, it's not like the CIA. You don't need clearance to uh, to talk about the FDA after you leave. Well, what about the uh, what about the process of the FDA? I was reading a stat here that that sort of surprised me. Something like one out of six Americans every year suffers from from food poisoning, and, and it sounded like maybe that was a, a flaw in the inspection system. But I've always thought that that had more to do with restaurants than food that people take yeah. home and prepare. Yeah, I mean you can get you can get food poisoning from packaged food and certainly when it's packaged food and it goes all over the country those are going to be your largest recalls. But individual restaurants also have problems. I mean restaurants have people from 30 different nationalities, you know, and so it's hard to keep them trained. They don't stay very often at restaurants so you have to keep retraining. And then finally people make mistakes at home in terms of how they uh, cook and handle food. I I always try to err on the side of caution. I my my mother was somewhat of a fanatic. You just did not leave food out at all. Um but she was exactly right. When in doubt, throw it out. Well, and but the other thing too is I think a lot of times people entertain and they they put food out, set up basically a buffet but it the food just sits there sometimes for hours and i'm thinking like super bowl parties and those type of events yeah sure i think you know some of the things that particularly people do is for picnics Uh, people will leave food out uh, for a long period of time and when food is is warm uh, particularly food that's that's a low acid that's a problem well (laughs) and of course what what's a picnic without potato salad right (laughs) exactly um, but I, I think the point I tried to make in my book is that FDA has used this figure now, going back well over 10 years, saying one in six people get sick, and therefore you need to increase our budget. Well, the question is, every time the budget gets increased and you come back the next year and you say, okay, it's one in six, well, what have you been doing with all the money? <laughs> well, yeah, I was, I was just going to get into that because, you know, that that does seem... A little odd, you know, in corporate America, if you try to increase your marketing budget and your numbers were flat year after year after year, the answer would be no. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, Unfortunately, you know, Congress has a very short memory. Uh, And so when FDA comes back every year, uh, Congress is more than happy to provide them with the same or a higher budget. 
So over the last 10 years, they've gotten about $10 billion. And yet every year, over those 10 years, they say, boy, you got to do something. One out of six people is getting sick every year. Richard, what happens at FDA when there's a government shutdown? You know, we always hear about... Um, you know, employees that stay on the job because they're deemed essential workers. Um, is, is that the case at FDA? If you are deemed essential, you do stay on the job. However, um, this is a talking point that most people get, and I don't think it's particularly one party or the other, frankly. Um, if, if we have a government shutdown, FDA won't be on the job, they won't be inspecting foods, and our foods will be unsafe. Well, that's actually one of the myths. I mean, the fact of the matter is FDA inspects food plants on average once every six years. And I used to tell uh, students, you know, this is like telling your child, I want you to keep your room clean and I'll be back once every six years to make sure it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that doesn't sound like a recipe for success very much, Richard. What are some of the other myths that you bring out in the book? Well, I think, you know, one of the big problems that we have are diet disease relationships. And this has kind of made news since about 1980, way back when the uh, Senate started hosting hearings on diet disease problems, and it's, it's huge now. And so FDA's advice to consumers that they put through their food label is, you know, here are the things that you need to know. But what we've seen over the years is we get these complete reversals. For a long time, you weren't supposed to eat eggs, then eggs were a superfood. We talked about total fat being bad, and then it wasn't bad. And same thing with dietary cholesterol. And now it may be true of saturated fat. I don't know. That, that data is still in, uh, being argued about. Oh, I'd give it a couple is, of years, Richard. I'm sure that there's a good saturated fat out there waiting to be <laughs> discovered. Yeah. So here's the problem. When you do these studies, you need data on what people eat. Well, uh, USDA performs these surveys, and they go and ask people, what did you eat in the last 24 hours? Not only what did you eat, but exactly how much of it did you eat? When they add it up, 60% of people don't report eating enough food to stay alive. Maybe because they don't want to say, well, yeah, I had a quart of ice cream last night. Whatever the reason, that's bad data going in, meaning those diet disease studies aren't going to be very good. And that's what we're, that's what we're dealing with. Richard, I, you know, I, I, I have to ask this because I, I wonder what are the the foods that FDA inspects and, and decides whether or not it ends up on our market shelves? So uh, FDA is responsible for all foods that are not meat and poultry. So meat and poultry are handled by USDA, the Food Safety Inspection Service. Everything else pretty much belongs to FDA. FDA, for most of those foods, FDA says they don't tell you whether or not it can be on the market unless they find when it's on the market it's actually dangerous. And the only one in recent history has been trans fatty acids. Other than that, they decide for any food or color additive, they have to decide before it goes on the market that it's safe. And that was one of the first things that I got into uh, when I was asked just to sort of do a, a benefit-cost analysis of banning a lot of lipstick colors. And when I looked at it, uh, it was supposed to be carcinogens. There didn't appear to be hardly any risk whatsoever. And I asked the guy who was writing all these regulations, I said, why are we banning these if, if, there's, if there's just not much risk? And he says, well, it doesn't really matter. I mean, women only need one color, and that's red. And I <laughs> think that was on, only a man would say that. <laughs> and, and if he's smart, not very loud. 
<laughs> exactly. Um, I, I, I keep I keep wanting to ask this question, and I'm just going to go ahead and do it. How did Cheetos get on the market? <laughs> well, Not that I don't love them when I'm binge-watching Netflix, but, you know, it, it just seems that, you know, we look to government agencies to make recommendations that are good for us. And, and if you are going to have and exercise the power to determine whether or not products can be shelved, you would take a look at, at the health implications, and if something isn't good, isn't deemed healthy, why would it pass muster? Well, so typically, FDA only looks at things that are dangerous. That is, they're unsafe and in an acute sense. It will make you ill uh, immediately. That's why I think trans fatty acids are somewhat differently. In terms of what um, advising you to about what foods to eat, FDA typically doesn't do that except they advise you on how much saturated fat, how much sodium, and so forth you should consume. And one of the problems with diets, and this is just diets overall, I don't care if it's coming from the government or some celebrity, uh, is generally what we found out or we're finding out is that they don't work for everybody. It turns out that everybody is an individual. So you have different genetics, you have a different microbiome, that's all, all the microbes in your body, different exercise routines, different uh, health conditions, age, and so forth. If you take all of those things and put them together, you're very much an individual. So I'll just give you an example. There was a recent study done in 2018 where they took 600 people, and they gave some of them low-fat diets, and they gave some of them low-carbohydrate diets. Well, at the end, the low-fat people in the low-fat diet lost an average of 11.7 pounds. The people on the low-carb diet lost 13.2 pounds. So it looks like, well, okay, they both lose weight. The problem is what they what these people did is they said, well, let's look at what happened to every single single individual in those studies. And both studies combined, some people lost as much as 70 pounds, but some people gained 24 pounds. So as it turns out, what was really important was the individual responses to those diets. And I think what we're going to see is that we really do need individual diets you can't just go on by what your family member tells you or what your friend tells you, hey, here's a great diet. It really does have to be individualized. More about fixing food with former FDA director Richard Williams straight ahead. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine 
and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination. Freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place with magical charms, indoors, indoors, indoors. Take it away. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. More about fixing food with former FDA Director Richard Williams straight ahead. Well, doesn't FDA make some um, recommended uh, servings of, of certain kinds of foods and, and food additives in terms of recommended daily amounts? Doesn't that come out of the FDA? Unfortunately, that's just one of those myths. What they try to do is they try to say, they look at the foods and they say, how much, how much do people consume in an individual serving? So that was, how, that was how all their recommendations for how much, again, sodium, saturated fat, fiber, and so forth to eat. It's by what they think the average amount is. Now, again, those are average amounts. It doesn't mean that's what people eat. They eat all kinds of amounts. 
Some people will go in and eat a bowl of cereal that's maybe the size of your hand. Some people eat three times that much. So it, those aren't really recommended amounts. The recommend, recommendations are for eating things that are good for you, eat so much of that during, during a 24-hour day, and those are things that are bad for you. But even again, those recommendations are general recommendations. They don't necessarily apply to you as an individual. Another statistic that I read, Richard, was that by 2030, I believe, it's anticipated that uh, that half of all Americans will be obese. Yeah, that's right. That came out of Harvard. Um, right now, we're at 42% of people are obese. And remember, this, is, this has been growing. So since the 1970s, we've seen um, obesity in, in children be quadrupled, and in adults it's been doubled. So we, the weight has been growing. It's expected to continue to grow. And there's a lot of people who want to say, well, that's not a big problem. But in point of fact, obesity is related to just tons of chronic diseases. And the most serious ones, are, I think, are heart disease uh, and diabetes. And diabetes, even in children, has been increasing. And even with our recent pandemic, we see that one of the underlying conditions that's responsible for more deaths is being obese. Is is that continual rise in obesity? Is how much of that is about food that we eat, and how much of it is about lifestyle and being less active? I don't think anybody has an exact percentage on it. Food seems to clearly be more important than lifestyle, and the reason we say that is that although there has been some changes in how much people exercise, it's not that much. But what we've seen since 1980, and this is not my fault, even though I went in the government in 1980, is we've seen this incredible increase uh, in obesity. Uh, it's not doesn't seem to be activity; it does seem to be food. But and I, I don't think the amount and composition. You know, I I don't think having orange-colored Oreos made as big a difference as um, as as video games and and social media and binge-watching cable television. I mean, it just seems that people have become, and, and when you talk about 1980, those things just have accelerated since then. Well, that's true. But again, at least the data shows, and I agree with you, it, it's certainly uh, one of the things that people ought to do because uh, it is get more exercise. Every study shows that it, it just affects so much of the quality of life. But in terms of weight, it does seem to be uh, more associated with the diet and just one thing that I, I find sort of interesting is a couple hundred years ago, we would Americans would eat an average of two to three pounds of sugar a day, today or a year, excuse me, two to three pounds a year. Today, that figure, the average figure, is 152 pounds of sugar a year. So that's certainly uh, that's just one thing that's contributing to this uh, epidemic. And is that because of sugar? that's been added to processed foods or am i just putting too much cereal or too much uh, sugar on my cereal no that that's that's exactly it it's in everything now either sugar or high fructose corn syrup and it's not ex it, we haven't exactly nailed down that's the cause of obesity but it's certainly one thing that i think we should be concerned about eating too much sugar but it's it's in it's in all kinds of packaged food yeah i i think video games play a role in this thing. I, I, there's a, a comic I saw, Richard, that I know you would get a kick out of. 
it shows a kid uh, playing with his computer in the living room, and his mother, you know, has just walked into the room and said, go outside and play. In the next frame yeah. is the kid standing at the window with his computer on the windowsill playing from outside. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I th- you know, things have changed. And certainly when I grew up, grew up uh, you know, my mother said, go outside and play and don't come back until dinner time. And today, I think there's, because of the ubiquitous news, um, people are more concerned about having their children just, you know, being allowed to go out on their own. I've just recently started, uh, as I get older, not liking driving at night very much. And and so I joke, and I'm sure you remember this, Richard. Um, I, I always say that I have to be home before the streetlights come on. <laughs> yeah. Well... What are some of the some of the other myths associated with the FDA? Well, uh, you know, are there things that that I, and one is that this FDA is is certainly just doing nothing but serious scientific things. So there's a law that was passed in 1938. Uh, this is when back when packaged food became more ubiquitous, uh, and mothers began to get out of the kitchen because of packaged food. So the law was passed so that manufacturers wouldn't change recipes. And what they wanted to do was keep food like mother used to make. Well, all right, mothers don't make food from scratch anymore in general. Uh, But those laws are still around, and FDA spends a lot of time. And I just want to give you a few examples of some of the things they've done in recent (laughs) years. Just like mom used to microwave. Yeah, so exactly. So, for example, FDA has bottled water in its purview. And at the behest of manufacturers, they define borehole water, which is where you bore a hole in the earth and water springs out, versus spring hole, where where naturally springs out, as though that makes any difference whatsoever. Uh, Another one, this is a Massachusetts bakery, that wanted everybody to know how great its granola bars were. So they listed love as an ingredient. Well, no (laughs) doubt FDA tested them and were unable to detect the love ingredient, and they sent a strongly worded cease and desist uh, letter to that manufacturer. It's things like that, trying to decide if almond milk should be allowed to be called milk. They've been doing that now for two years. That are kind of a waste of resources. It's a waste for the manufacturers, and it's certainly a waste of FDA's time. So this whole idea that this is a serious scientific agency, this is non-science, or you might shorten that to nonsense. <laughs> well, I would think that, you know, that there shouldn't there be some common sense that says... You can have love in your slogan, but not in your list of ingredients. I suppose. I don't think most people got confused about it. Probably not. Um, but I can understand they, how it would be confusing to the FDA. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I certainly, when I was there, I continually said, this is a lot of waste of our time when we have people getting sick every year and people um, eating poor diets. We shouldn't be spending so much time on this. But just to let you know how it all got started, my first introduction to this was when we were regulating the size of canned pear halves. I want you to think about that, the size of canned pear halves. (laughs) Okay. So I asked the lady who was doing it, I said, honestly, I don't understand this. Why do we do this? And she goes, well, Richard, I want you to think about a dinner party. Now I was young enough, so I'd never been to a dinner party. I didn't know what she was talking about. But she says, suppose you have two, two people sitting next to one another, and they're eating a pear salad. And she had to explain what that was to me. It was a piece of lettuce with a slice of pear 
and some cottage cheese and cherry on top. She goes, what if one person looks over at the other one and sees they have a bigger pair? Think how bad that would be, how bad they would feel. And I was sitting there thinking, wait a minute, we use the power of the government to make sure dinner parties run smoothly? (laughs) I was stunned. And that's why I was sort of against that kind of uh, regulation right from the start. (laughs) Well, when you talk about regulation, Richard, and and this is the Food and Drug Administration, how much of it is really administration and how much of it is analysis of the things we consume? Well, it's it's, it's both. Um, But FDA, just like uh, other regulatory agencies, spends a lot of time putting out new regulations every year. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of those regulations uh, suffer from poor analysis. They suffer from poor science. And um, I was asked a number of times, essentially, to do poor economic analysis. And so they don't do a lot of good for consumers. Again, that's another issue that I was, was and continue to be very concerned about. What about the trust factor? Does FDA have a, a better track record than what we're seeing lately at the CDC? Oh, overall, FDA is one of the most trusted agencies in the government. There's there's no question people trust it. Um, in fact, um, part of the pro- this is for me is a problem, is one, one writer wrote that FDA is the most powerful regulatory agency in the world. And that is certainly true. I know I held um, meetings around the country when we were doing the food labeling with small businesses. And I met with them to tell them, here's what it's going to cost you, here's what you're going to have to do. And I asked them, I have an audience of, say, 300 people, does anybody have any questions? And nobody had any questions until I ended the talk. I went down off the stage, and then they would surround me, and they let me know. They weren't going to tell me their name. They didn't want FDA to know who they were. They were absolutely petrified of FDA. So there's trust, but there's also a lot of fear. With the the title of your book, Richard, is, um, again, it's Fixing Food, an FDA Insider Unravels the Myths and the Solutions. Um, how much of the myths are about things that are problematic that require solutions, and what are the solutions for if not for the myths? Well, I think, you know, sort of the big um, myth is that it it is FDA that's keeping our food safe. As I said, they don't inspect that often. A lot of their regulations are more for show to keep Congress off their back uh, than not. And and I think the other thing is is that this myth is that the solution lies within this regulatory framework, that we can just simply tell manufacturers what they need to do. In food labeling, we can insist that consumers learn how to use food labels correctly, which they haven't for 30 years and never will. So that's the myth. When I looked at the solutions, and this is sort of came to me later on in, in my career, it turns out that I think there's a lot of new technologies coming onto the market that are really going to be the solutions. Um, one of them most people are familiar with this idea of new proteins that are coming onto the market, like the Impossible Burger and Beyond Meat. Um, they're, they're new products. Um, but their potential uh, for to be produced both really safe foods and not to mention they are ultimately going to be better for you and better for the environment and so forth. That's just one thing. But we're getting new packaging technology where the packaging would alert you to when your food is going bad uh, using nanotechnology, things like that. Uh, and I go through quite a few of them in the book. I, I think those are the answer. The problem that we'll have is a lot of these things come under the FDA purview of pre-approval 
And if FDA slows them down, um, that's, going, that's going to make this obesity problem continue as well as the food safety problem. And you say fixing food, and of course the first question is, you know, is food broken? Or are you really just kind of hinting that we can do it better? Absolutely the latter. I'm hinting that we can do it better. Um, and I think, I think we will, um, particularly, as I say, as long as, as we kind of rethink what FDA's role is with, with respect to these new technologies, not to stop everything to make people spend millions of dollars to get something onto the market and wait years. I think if we can just address that, we can do a lot better. And because you've worked at FDA, but but also um, been involved with the EPA Science Advisory Board in uh, the Center for Truth and Science, what about the science? Why do we believe the FDA's science and we don't believe Anthony Fauci, for example? <laughs> well, it's a good question. Um, I, you know, part of the reason is that FDA does produce some science itself, but they also receive science. And uh, the science of uh, nutrition, for example, is one that's particularly problematical when people just don't report eating enough food to stay alive, and that's what you rely on to do these diet disease studies. But some of the science that FDA produced when I was there was also, well, actually kind of silly uh, and, and wasn't really scientific at all. So I, I do have a problem with the science, and some of that FDA can do something about, and some of it they can't. They're just the recipients. Is is there a role for John Q. Public in the solutions and in fixing food? Absolutely. And I think the thing is, is um, try to become more aware of, of what's going on in in with some of these new products. The ones, one of the ones I'm most excited about. A lot of people now have Fitbits and similar things that they wear on their hands. I should have mentioned well, Jane Q. Public when I said that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but she was she well, was so, in the other room putting on her red lipstick. <laughs> so uh, these men, these these innovators around the world are trying to look at how can we get people to to actually, or how can we get these products to look at what you're eating and say, you know what. Based on your personal characteristics, here's something that you should eat and here's something you probably shouldn't eat. And to actually give you real-time advice on, on what you should be eating as opposed to trying to decipher the food label. To me, those are some of the most exciting products that are coming. And they're going to perhaps look like Fitbits or something like that. So you can imagine, um, you know, you're at a restaurant even and it's the, this, your Fitbit or your consumer device says, okay, I know what the menu is. I know what what your health status is, what your genetic status is, what your microbiome status is, and so forth. Here's what I would suggest you eat based on what you typically like to eat, and here's how much I suggest you eat as well. That kind of thing would be so much simpler than what people have to do now. I mean, I was struck by, by one uh, survey where people, uh, where they asked people about how do you decide what to eat, and one person said trying to figure out what to eat is harder than doing your own taxes. I can see that. It can be. Um, again, that's that's one of those things. I used to have a little cartoon on the refrigerator when my kids were little that had this little boy walk up to his mother in the kitchen and tug on her apron and say, Mom, can we have dinner at the table like those people on TV? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
but that's but but you have people who you know feel like they're on the go all the time and it's not that unusual for a family of four to hit two or three different fast food places to bring home dinner yeah sure i mean that's that's another thing that you know since we've had this increase in obesity eating out uh and eating out at fast foods is one of the things that's that's increased considerably well let me how how reliable are all the books that we see? And I interview a lot of them that have written these books about either diets or healthy living. Are, are they, by and large, pretty reliable when you talk about custom uh, designing a person's diet? Well, so first of all, the ones I've read, and I certainly haven't read them all. There are just, as you know, just hundreds of them, if not thousands, um, all say... Uh, here's the diet that I, I've looked at, and I've looked at studies, and, and there are studies that show they take large groups of people and show this diet seems to be better than others, or this diet by itself seems to do what you want it to do. And that's fine. The, answer, the problem is that may work for you, any individual diet, uh, or it may not. Um, and the problem is, is that, uh, again, it's individualized. So if you read a book that says, here is the diet that everybody should eat, I honestly don't think that's right. It could be a great diet. In fact, many of them are, but it, it might not be right for everybody. Uh, just myself, I took one of these tests, and uh, I found out that I don't do very well with saturated fat. I should probably not eat a lot. On the other hand, it said I do excellently handling carbs. So that's just me, um, and that's just a very, very surface-level um, recommendation. So I think we're going to need something much better. I think it's going to change the diet industry considerably. And and a lot of that's coming out of technology. Um, Richard, let me how did you decide to write this book and who is it for and what do you hope they'll get out of it? Sure. Um toward the end of my career, uh I began to be very frustrated. I it just seemed like we'd put out so many regulations during this time. And, and so many of them were just, as I said, they're kind of for show. They didn't really do anything. And starting to look at the data, we were just, everything was going in the wrong direction. We weren't improving food safety. Uh, uh, people's diets were leading to worse health, not better. And so I just decided it was time to write the book. Uh, I think one audience is anybody who's involved in the food business, and that includes people who regulate food, people who make food. Um, I think... Well, that's for them. But but more generally, and I didn't want to write this uh, like an academic paper, I wanted to write for anybody who's concerned, concerned about whether or not their dinner is safe and nutritious. So that's anybody who's responsible in the home um, for fixing food. And, and, and that's the reason I wrote it, uh, both with a, you know, at a sort of a consumer level with anecdotes and talked about stories more than just sort of blasting science at people. The book is uh, Fixing Food, an FDA Insider Unravels the Myths and the Solutions, uh, released in uh, October of 2021, written by uh, Dr. Richard Williams, a uh, former FDA insider. Uh, Richard, what's ne what's next for you? <laughs> well, um, it, it's, it's sometimes it's hard to think about what's next because I've been working on this book for a long time. But I think one of the things that I'm most interested in is what I just talked about, how really we are individuals and how so much of what we're told to do 
suggests that we are all alike and that one solution fits everybody equally. And I, I thought I might uh, spend some time exploring that. Well, Richard, um, I appreciate you spending this time with me. It's It's been a pleasure talking with you, and I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they might find out more about you, the book, maybe your work, uh, past, present, and future. Do you have a website? I do. It's richardawilliams.com, and on the website you can find uh, places such as Amazon or your local bookstore where you can buy the book. Also, um, I do put out a weekly post once a week, and you can sign up for it there. All I need is your email address, and uh, you'll get a post every week that I try to keep that interesting and mostly around food, but not not always. Richard, now I'm going to be thinking about this all day, that you worked at the FDA and your initials spell raw. <laughs> well, that is true. <laughs> Actually, as I used to tell my Army friends, uh, backwards it spells war. <laughs> oh, there you go. The um, I, I worked at a radio station once where the chief engineer, who initialed everybody's everything, um, and his initials spelled ear, E-A-R. <laughs> anyway, Richard, thanks so much, and uh, and kudos on the book. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for having me on. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. That was uh, Dr. Um, Richard Williams, Ph.D., who served at the Food and Drug Administration from 1980 to 2007, finally serving as the Director for Social Science with the Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition. After leaving FDA, he was the Vice President for Policy Research at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. He has also been on the U.S. EPA Science Advisory Board and board chairman for the Center for Truth in Science and board member of the Institute for the Advancement of Food and Nutrition Sciences. His book is uh, simply called Fixing Food, an FDA insider unravels the myths and the solutions. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program. Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com From the Tom Sumner Show Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19. 
and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Armchair politics is going to hell. Hell, Michigan, that is, and you are invited. On October 27th, Wednesday before Halloween, Armchair Politics will be broadcasting live from 9 a.m. to noon from the Hell Saloon in Hell, Michigan, near Pinckney. This will be our first in-person meeting of the Tom Sumner Program's weekly roundtable armchair politics since the beginning of the pandemic. Join me and roundtable regulars Flint's premier political pundit Paul Rosicki on the left and longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter on the right, plus more on Wednesday, October 27, 2021, starting at 9 a.m. at the Hell Saloon. Armchair politics is going to hell, and you can too. Say, objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Oh, hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, Attorney General stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam. Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, Report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dina, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Wow, wow, wow. 
what was that? It was a little jazz. <laughs> Very little jazz. Just wanted to make the point that I've got right. soul. You know? You've got what? Soul. That's soul? That is soul. Oh. How nice. Filet of soul. <laughs> boy, that cabbage down, boy, string that old cake brown. Only song I ever did sing is boy, that cabbage down. Boil that cabbage down, boy, turn that old cake round. The only song I ever did sing is boil that cabbage down. Take it, Tom. No. <laughs> I, I said no, I didn't no. want to take it. No, sometimes you're not supposed to sing that. Well, sometimes a fellow doesn't feel like taking it. He just stands right up and says no. I didn't want to... I didn't Tommy. know it upset you this much. I just don't well, want to take it. Look what to the song. No. Too bad you caught me on an off night like that. I just don't want to take it Tommy, when a fella stands up and says... Tommy, folk singers always take it. I just, I... You know that? You haven't even read the folk singer's guidebook. You, oh, you haven't even read the folk singer's credo. You, you don't know what it is to be a folk singer. Oh, You're a big phony. You, oh yeah? Yeah. Tell me, have you read the folk singer's credo? Yeah, well, Are you a folk singer? Yes, I are. Okay. Then you've read the guidebook, right? And you've read the credo. I Remember didn't. when you got your guitar, it came with a book? Came with a book and an Arthur Godfrey chord changer. Yeah, I read Mom read it to me. Yeah, okay. What does a folk credo say? It says, all folk singers are obligated to do what? Dickie, I didn't know. Obligated to do what? I, I, I don't remember what it, what it said there. Come on. All folk singers are obligated to take it. That's right. He said to take it. If you feel like it. If you no, don't feel like it. No, it doesn't say if you feel like it. It says all folk singers are obligated to take it without hesitation, without thinking. They're to take it like a reflex. You, take it, Tom. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah, well, so when know, I say take it, I want to see you hop to it all the time, every time. Dickie the dictator. Boil that cabbage down. Take it, Tom. Boom, 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 all the time. <laughs> Hundreds of years ago, the railroad started in America. Rugged men of yesteryear went on the vast wilderness of early America with a great dream in their minds, and vision in their eyes, and big nine-pound hammers clasped in their hands. These were men of yesteryear building a vast railroad, a vast spiderweb of steel rails spanning across the width and breadth of the country, toiling and inching their way under the, under the lucky old sun. <laughs> they inched and toiled their way across the vast bosom of America. Thought <laughs> throw a little sex in the show. All right, all right. But this wasn't just a fun job. You're a real garbage mouth, you know that? You're talking about history, remember? Well, there was, there, these railroad men, it wasn't fun. They faced dangers. These men of yesterday, where they went, there lurked dangers. Some of the railroad men, they'd be working in the mountains, and in the mountains, there's a lot of a lot of dangers lurking in the mountains. These railroad men sometimes would stop at like at night when they were resting. Sometimes there's more, the nervous, some of the nervous railroad men. They'd 
jump out of bed in the middle of the night, I'd say, hey, I saw a danger lurk. Well, what kind of dangers? There was dangers lurking in the mountains and they had to build the roads across raging deserts and blazing rivers and across the plains of America and there lurked dangers. Tommy, raging deserts and blazing rivers? They were tough, man, to get across those. Yeah, I think so. And these real men, to make it even worse, they, they were fearless men. They had to build railroads. Wait till you hear this. They had to build railroads across crevices. Deep crevices in the ground. And these real men had to span these crevices with big railroad pretzels. And in the bottom of these crevices, oftentimes in the bottom of these crevices, there lurked pumas. Vicious pumas. That's right, pumas with claws and that's foam wrong. coming out of these there pumas' mouths. Tommy, that's wrong. And they have there bad were... breath, too. There weren't any pumas down there. There was the pumas, and oh, these rare men, they'd say, Wow, look at those pumas down Stop there in the there crevice. Weren't, there weren't any hey, pumas. Hey, I don't want to build a railroad across this crevice. I don't care what you say, there's pumas in them. Tommy, for crying out loud, there were no pumas in the there, crevices. There, there wasn't was... even one puma in one crevice. There, there was There, there was, was not. There was three pumas in the crowd. Mama Puma and Papa Puma and Baby. baby puma. <laughs> Who's been sleeping in my crevice? Tommy, <laughs> right, do you want me to tell you why there were no pumas in the crevices? There was pumas. You want me to tell you why? There, the reason there weren't any, we don't have any pumas in this country. There, you see, there are no pumas in America. We, we accept everybody in America, Dickie. That's right, we do. But do you want to keep your story truthful? Yes, Historically I, correct? Yes, I do. Then get rid of the pumas right now. I'm not going down that crevice. Well, there was these vicious beasts in these crevices. And these rare old men were sore afraid. And these rare men come up to these crevices, they say, Wow, look at those vicious beasts in the crevices! <laughs> Sure smell like pumas. Hey, cut that out. But they weren't. But they weren't. And these railroad men were sore afraid. Yet the railroads were completed. Yes, Americans. We can look back with pride on the historical archises of American history, where these men of yesteryear completed this giant task, the transcontinental railroads. It took a Herculean effort on the part of these men. But the task was completed, and you're probably saying, you probably wonder, when since this song coming? Maybe. Well, a big feast transpired, and a sole substance for this feast, for these ravenous railroad men of yesteryear, and this big feast, the sole substance was hotcakes boiled in cabbage juice. Big giant uh, pancakes um, boiled in a pot of uh, cabbage juice for several hours. <laughs> then they'd eat it. <laughs> Hotcakes and cabbage juice, those guys all think it's swell. But every time I eat the stuff, I always feel like blah. Oh, boil that cabbage down, boys, turn that old cake round. The only song I ever did sing is boil that cabbage down. Working on the railroad, working all day long. Take it. When someone says take it, you're supposed to take it. <laughs> <laughs>
I suppose you've read the folk singer Creed who you shot your mouth off about it enough, and then when I say take it, you didn't take it. When someone says take it, you're supposed I'm, to take I'm it. Are you a folk singer? I'm very sorry. Don't get belligerent. I, why didn't you take it? When someone says, I'm trying to get belligerent because you were absolutely right. You stood Boy, up. that really makes me angry when a guy doesn't take it. That's right, and it makes me angry too. And I think anybody who doesn't take it should be severely chastised, Tommy. Because you were right. The way you said take it was in a true folk tradition. You stood up there on your own two feet and you said take it with authority. You knew what you were doing. You're a, a man who, who knows where he's going. That's the way you were. You said take it. And I didn't take it. I know that I didn't take it. I, I don't know what happened. I, I assumed, see, I assumed you were going to take it. Well, but you're supposed I to... know it. I'm supposed to take it. A folk singer should never assume anybody else is going to take it. And I should have, I should have known. I should have been alert. And I, and I wasn't. I, I guess my mind was just wandering. That's all. And I, I apologize for not taking it. No. I assure you, I'll do my best to see that it, it never ever happens again. Honestly. I'll let it go this time. Working on the railroad, working all day long. Take it. Working, 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 working. Boil the cabbage down, boys. Turn, turn, oh, kick round. The only song I ever did sing. Boil the cabbage, boil the cabbage down, boy. Turn that old cake round. The only song I ever did sing is boil that cabbage. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Armchair Politics is going to hell. Hell, Michigan, that is, and you're invited. On October 27th, Wednesday before Halloween, Armchair Politics will be broadcasting live from 9 a.m. to noon from the Hell Saloon in Hell, Michigan, near Pinckney. This will be our first in-person meeting of the Tom Sumner Program's weekly roundtable armchair politics since the beginning of the pandemic. Join me and roundtable regulars Flint's premier political pundit Paul Rosicki on the left and longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter on the right, plus more on Wednesday, October 27, 2021, starting at 9 a.m. at the Hell Saloon. Armchair politics is going to hell, and you can too. Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner.